This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. Machine learning is based on what might normally be seen as boring data. But what makes data interesting is where it comes from how it is put together, and what it results in, which ultimately is all a process designed by humans. There is a current misconception about AI where it is considered other to human intelligence, reminiscent of a Descartes dualism. But AI is a human creation. It is bound by humans designing it, feeding it data, and interacting with it. So is the whole thing just an extension of human intelligence? Data policy expert and senior fellow at the School of Cybernetics, Ellen Broad, joins the Art Intelligence Agency to explain some of the broader considerations of data and demystify the otherness of AI. Ellen's expertise are only exceeded by her passion for all things data, and her latest book, Made by Humans, The AI Condition, provides the foundations for the future of her field. To establish AI as a subjective, perhaps creative, venture, Ellen joins me from Canberra. I am joined today at the Art Intelligence Agency by Agent Ellen Broad. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, firstly, uh, I'd love for, for you to introduce yourself and your, your kind of research interests for our audience. Uh, I would really appreciate that if you could. Sure. So I'm a senior fellow at the 3A Institute at the Australian National University, which is now, as of about six weeks ago, the School of Cybernetics. I can explain what cybernetics is in a little bit. Sure. Uh, my research interests, I'd say, are primarily responsible AI, ethical AI, understanding how AI fits in the physical world and in the human world. Well, uh, that said, (laughs) um, I would like to ask you uh, about one of your recent books. So Made by Humans, The AI Condition. I guess my first question for you is uh, uh, on a podcast where we talk about AI is who who designs AI? Why, Why is that an important question to ask? It's an important question to ask because AI always comes from someone. Mm. And the reason I feel like that's an important question to start with is because we still quite often talk about AI in terms as though it's created separate and distinct from humans. Like AI is going to take over the world or AI is going to replace our jobs Mm. or AI is going to predict the future when they're always crafted by humans and those humans I don't even think it's I don't think you can even just say like they're software engineers because complex systems Mm. usually have huge teams behind them so you're talking about they're like a combination of software engineers product owners architects user experience designers business development managers um, and then wherever think, the data is coming from too, like from, it, yep. From people on the web, from different kinds of contexts where we're leaving kind of digital traces behind ourselves. So they're, I guess, created in, in lots of contexts, not all contexts, but in a lot of contexts where they interact with or imitate humans, they are designed by a variety of us contributing to the way they look. And that's why looking at the context in which they're created, 
the kinds of people involved can mm. tell you a lot about what they are likely to do and some of the challenges they might encounter. Right. I'm, I'm going to ask just because you ref- referred to it earlier, what, what, what is uh, cybernetics? I mean, that seems like something to establish early. It, it is actually. And it's something that actually is older than artificial intelligence. So cybernetics as a discipline predates artificial intelligence by almost 10 years. And in oh. fact, the creation of the research agenda around artificial intelligence, where they explicitly came up with a name and said, this is what we're going to study. Uh, one of the rumors associated with that was they had to call it artificial intelligence because they really didn't want the founder of cybernetics, Norbert Wiener, to get involved or feel like he owned the research agenda because cybernetics was also very interested in the study of machines, communication and control. But cybernetics came out of the shadow of World War II and it was very transdisciplinary from the outset. It was when computer science was still very much theoretical. So it was mathematicians, logicians, scientists, philosophers starting to think about what it meant to design self-guiding missile systems and what it meant to have just unleashed the atomic bomb. But what was interesting about cybernetics was it was very much interested in the relationship between systems and the environments they sat within and the humans they intersected with. And so the term cybernetics actually comes from the Greek word Kubernetes, which means to steer or to helms. So they were thinking of like, what is our science of steering or guiding systems? And it, for about 30 or 40 years, was more popular than AI. It was influenced art, literature, philosophy, neuroscience, anthropology. There were these huge exhibitions around the world of cybernetic art. There was cybernetic pop culture. And then as focuses just on machines became more interesting, so computer science as a discipline became very much about perfecting reasoning and logic in machines themselves. Cybernetics, which was a bit messier, It was not interested just in how you craft something perfectly, but what does it relate to? How does that help you understand it? Mm. It just lost popularity. But now I think particularly with everything that we've seen happening over the last decade or so, you know, emergence of climate change, widening inequality, the complexity of the computing systems and models that we use i think it's coming back like we're starting to go huh you really need to understand yeah you can't look at ai in a vacuum right everything is connected uh on the podcast we really try and delve into how humans communicate with each other and then perhaps even how they interact and communicate with machines and and then how machines interact and communicate with humans yeah and you know if if those data sets are are created by humans i mean in if you if you were to i guess extrapolate that through a complex system software engineers and, and their associates are communicating with other humans through ai in the sense that they design it and then that is then interacting with humans again There's a lot of complex feedback loops is the way I describe it with a cybernetics hat on going (laughs) on in the design of language models. Right, right. And so with your AI hat on, uh, how do things shift? What what is so different about about things now? 
So the way that I would describe, like if I'm flipping from one hat to another, mm. in an AI hat, your focus primarily becomes the system itself. What is that system doing? How is it being trained to understand language? What is the data that it's trained on? Um, what model does it use? What energy does that system require in order to be trained to communicate in language? Cybernetics pulls you out a little bit. So you are still asking those questions, but you're starting to think about how do I understand that system when I communicate with it? How is its approach to language being changed as it learns from me? How might uh, this way of modeling talking affect the way we speak to each other in two years time or five years time? So you start to think about things like time, second order and third order effects. The system is important, but it sits within these bigger systems. So that's what I'd say the difference is. Right, right. Uh, I mean, and those systems aren't as, you know, they're not autonomous yet, you know, they're, but they're, they're sort of slowly gaining that autonomy as far as I see it. You might disagree, but uh, most of our AI agents have kind of given reasons to, to not be afraid of AI. You know, do you, do you actually feel a sense of, of danger when you start to look at, you know, your second and third order consequences? Honestly, I feel like I've always been just afraid of us <laughs> because it's not I like I am definitely not afraid of AI systems. I actually don't even think they are close to approaching autonomy in a deep sense of the word. There are obviously a variety of definitions of autonomy. And quite often when we talk about autonomy in a legal context, or a philosophical context, we're talking about something more akin to your ability to self-determine or self-establish, be like, here is my identity and here is how I'm going to enact that identity on the world and exhibit free will. When we talk about autonomy quite often in relation to driverless vehicles, autonomous systems, we're talking about can they move themselves mm. and can they respond to actions? And some now autonomous kind of infrastructure kind of providers and regulators are abandoning the word autonomy in favor of the word automated as a more accurate description of what most systems do. Because for example, the US's standards for self-driving vehicles, they actually put into their standards for assessing the level of automation of a vehicle an explicit note that they would no longer use the term autonomy because even using it led people to assume the car could manifest certain behaviors and act in ways in the world that it just literally can't like. Yep. So I think I always use terms like automation, automated, because that word autonomy is so, has so much weight and, and this minute you use it, depending on someone's background, cultural background, disciplinary background, they'll imagine something different. And what we cannot do with AI systems is leave it up to people's imaginations to fill in the gaps of what they think a system does. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what you've established is that anything we have to worry about is human error. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you could just say that about most things. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> but it's more that the weakest point in any system 
we talk about in cybersecurity is a human. And I still feel like that is the case when we talk about AI because the point at which you believe something of an AI system, whether or not that is actually true, the point at which you've ceded agency to it is usually the point at which you should be afraid. Like when you've decided, you know what, diagnosing cancer using AI will always be better than humans and you've just ceded agency entirely, you're no longer exercising independent thought, that's not an AI problem, that is a human problem. That is us like failing to take account of our own responsibility. So yeah. No checks and balances. No, it's like AI is not like I'm, I'm afraid of climate change. I'm afraid of nuclear war. AI is not one thing. It is a variety of tools and techniques that we use in different contexts. Mm. And our biggest problem is that we still kind of think of it in this cultural mythical context that gives it perhaps more agency and autonomy right. than it deserves. Interesting. So, I mean, it, it's not an existential threat. Do you, do you think, you know, we've discussed on the podcast artists being able to use AI to kind of augment their artistic process. Do you, do you believe that to the extent that AI isn't an ex- existential threat, it won't be kind of an artist, you know, it doesn't have the autonomy, autonomy to be able to kind of communicate those kinds of things. I think even art, it's only an existential threat if we assume that there is one definition of what makes good art and it will be filled by AI when I'm sure you and I could sit for 30 seconds and name our three favourite artworks and they would be wildly different and possibly one of of our suggestions the other would hate and be like, that's not art (laughs) because we are incredibly diverse in our approach to making and in our approach to creativity. And part of artistic practice has always been augmenting artistic practice with technologies Mm. of the day. And so I don't see using AI to augment artistic practice or even as a performance of practice as being non, like that's still humans making art. Yeah, They're setting up an AI system or they're performing seeding agency to an AI system. But it's not like we just have computers completely independently going out there, sitting in the world, coming up with their own forms of inspiration. There is always us feeding data, Mm. deciding the context they're in and setting them up. So, Interesting. So like you said, you were afraid of the humans and certainly humans can harm other people with, you know, mistakes, but we also have like a propensity for care. AI theoretically could be instrumental in the, in curing cancer, you know, um, how do we best avoid something like Skynet and end up with something like, you know, some kind of AI cancer doctor? I think like the Skynet example is another one where it's like, you know what, we, we can, we can actually implement our own guardrails to avoid Skynet. It's going to be pretty clear We already talk about, for example, incredibly advanced language models that are openly licensed as getting us a step closer to Skynet. Mm. But we talk about those models like they're just out there and we're a step closer to Skynet and not how should we be publishing these? Mm. How should we be using them? 
in what context is it okay? AI, you know, using AI in medical diagnosis is exactly the same. There are going to be, and there are really responsible, pragmatic, amazing computer scientists doing fantastic work using machine learning to help pour through identification of moles, for example, that could be cancerous or detecting signs of breast cancer. The challenge in any application is that there's some really, really diligent, careful people trying to communicate exactly what is and isn't possible. And then there are people who will just say, you know what, we can cure dementia with AI, Mm. which we do not know if we can do. (laughs) We just have people that oversell the promise. (laughs) Right. I mean, and we've done this with every technology, like electricity. They used to be like, electricity can cure blindness. If we zap (laughs) you enough times, we can reanimate the dead. We can cure blindness. We can help women give birth. Right. Yeah. Now we know that's dangerous (laughs) and it could kill people. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, how well considered was the implementation of cell phones before we're at a situation now where they interrupt human social interaction? all these things are kind of the consequences aren't considered necessarily it's like every future generation will look back at certain things that to us were normal and be like why did you think that was (laughs) healthy or not dangerous you know like we look at like i look at movies like i remember in mad men how they're always smoking and drinking indoors yeah and it's so ingrained now like that that is a hazard yeah nobody should do that and that um the characters quite often get in their cars visibly drunk in the series yep but in that era that was cultural practice there was no reflection yet on the combination of cigarettes (laughs) and alcohol and work and driving yeah so i think perhaps our children and grandchildren will look back at some of the things that we do with technology now and be like why did you think that would work? Why did you think Microsoft Hey would would wouldn't just go to the lowest com- common denominator? Yeah, yeah. you you idiots. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, well, this was the first time we were doing it. We didn't know. Well, I guess, and you you like you know, without being irresponsible, you kind of do have to experiment. You do have to experiment. You definitely do. I think we do have a problem in the industry where sometimes the consequences are not that hard to imagine. Like if you just thought for five seconds, the consequences <laughs> would be quite apparent. We mm. just ignore history or we right. ignore those broader contexts. So there's definitely some things that you genuinely are difficult to predict. And it's not until <laughs> they happen that you realize the mistakes you've made. But there have been some really dumb <laughs> projects under okay. the umbrella of AI that I think we could have foreseen the challenges that they would encounter. Total Jurassic Park situation. You know, we yeah. spent so long working out whether we could, we didn't stop to think whether we should. You know. mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> so we've identified, I guess, that, you know, AI has this human bias, even with not necessarily just the design of it, but even with the interaction with it, if you consider something like Microsoft Tay. Is there some flexibility in this, touches on what we've talked about before, about kind of perceiving AI is more human. I, th- I feel like the, the language is now interpreted perhaps by the general public who might not know any better that AI is sort of other. Is it best to kind of think of it as a human practice? I think 
it's useful to think of it as a human practice because there are so many design choices that we make in the manufacture of any AI system, whether we're doing flood modeling using artificial intelligence or whether we're designing a humanoid robot for a gallery space. Like there's always a bunch of basic engineering and design questions that a human has to decide. One of the things that I do find challenging now is I was just talking earlier about we're like going through this cycle of AI myths Mm. and we still can't really just talk about it like in, in more mundane, unsexy, messy ways because we started with the kind of it's going to either destroy us all or replace us all or put us in utopia kind of myths. Yeah. Now we've almost swung the other way in a lot of conversations where it's should we be terrified of it? Mm. Is it always biased? Is it always nefarious and creepy? And the reality is there are so, so many contexts within which we use tools and techniques under the umbrella of AI that are really not dubious. Yeah. You know, the flood modeling example I gave is one where your issues of bias still exist, mm. you know, but they're in a much more contained context. And we're talking about how you take into account all of the ways in which water runs off a landscape. So you might still miss some things. You might, you know, assume soil has certain quantities that it doesn't, but it's a much more um, less risky proposition and you can keep collecting more data and learn the thing that you're trying to measure. Yep. Where I think it becomes really challenging and where we talk a lot about bias and human bias is where we fall into these situations where we think we can use AI systems to solve problems that have always been hard human problems, like determining who is most likely to succeed Mm. in education. It's like these are hard things to predict. More data doesn't make them easier to predict. The problem is that we exist in a world that is always changing. Yeah. And that's what makes it hard. Yeah. It's the fact that those things fail is really a good argument for not having a kind of hard deterministic perspective on the world. Like we kind of have some free will. Yeah. Like Um. (laughs) we, like, I know, I mean, I'm sure the philosopher, there, there is definitely a thread of, philosophical thought that would argue very strongly we don't have free will yes but i just feel like because i that the deterministic approach is quite common in computer science like to Mm. presume we do not have free will but that just absolves us of any responsibility to do anything differently like as soon as you've said we do not have free will Mm. you say and therefore there's nothing i can do about this yeah and i think that's a cop out yep okay yeah well you know uh, data from an outside perspective seems i guess you know quite boring it's analytical it's just it's just numbers you know it's all quantitative but you know can we describe ai qualitatively i would say like we do describe ai qualitatively all the time like we imbue ai systems with all kinds of qualitative properties you know we talk about them being caring or cold right yeah I recently talked to someone about virtual beings Mm -hmm. and that was really interesting because we were talking about how we anthropomorphize everything. So, you know, I might refer to my car as a she 
or mm -hmm. you know we might refer to our virtual girlfriend or boyfriend or partner or whatever it may be that you can find on some app as as a as a she is a living being we we anthropomorphize them but still the data set behind them is still it's 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 only quantitative right well, a lot of data in a literal sense can start off as qualitative data. Like mm. it's not true that all of our data sets are derived from numerical sources. We turn them into ones and zeros in order to help them be read by a machine. But, you know, we use video and text and art and all of these sources that are not numerical in origin Mm. to train systems to see things differently in the world. And usually what's interesting, the biggest challenge we have is that as soon as you say the word data, people assume it's numerical and it's fact-based. Yep. So whatever you're training a model with, irrespective of the context, it implies numerical, fact-based, objective, impartial. And actually language models that we've talked about a lot where we're training them on voice conversations with digital assist assistants or our chat logs on the web. They are not impartial. They are not objective. They capture certain slices of human interactions. And so they're actually very interesting as data sets, not so much because you can use them as objective truth. Usually you can't. That's the, that's the problem. That's the hard part. But they actually give you, if you look at them as a data set that is of interest, lots of insights into humans and how we think. So I think they're very interesting. <laughs> well, that is a fantastic basis for creative use of AI. If it becomes subjective, if there's things to qualitatively assess about it or, and within mm -hmm. it, then that is a fantastic prospect for anyone who's wanting to create all kinds of divergent. There are so many beautiful data artists. Like I love Georgia Lupi, Stephanie Posevec, two that I used to work with in the UK, Thompson and Craighead, who did really interesting things like crafting data as blocks of ice to melt away. Just, cool. you know, you can do so much with data as a art source you don't necessarily just have to take it as gospel and presume it's going to give you the answers to life. True. Unless you're Douglas Adams and then the answer is always, what is it, 42? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, I, I really have to thank you for joining me to discuss these fascinating topics, Agent Ellen Broad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was fun. If you wish to hear more from Ellen, you can follow her on Twitter, at Ellen Broad, and discover her book through the link in the episode description. Ellen is a fascinating commentator who has contributed significantly to her field and has plenty of interesting projects to keep an eye on. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal.